It's a busy one this week on the opening bell. Lots going on, particularly fights coming up this weekend, over the weekend, and into next week. And it's all across the boxing planet as well. Lots to get our teeth into. Matt Christie, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, really good. All yes, you're so hectic at the moment. It's 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 very difficult to keep on top of everything. But um as I've said before, as much as we can be critical of certain things like sanctioning bodies is the obvious one that we have kind of focused on in recent weeks. You can't deny that the boxing calendar at the moment is delivering and then some. Um, it is week after week of um, fights that are well matched um, and fights that you genuinely want to see. And I think this week's boxing news, we're kind of thinking, well, what on earth are we going to put on the cover? We've got George Cambosis, <laughs> Devin Haney, uh, Joe Cordina in a kind of uh, opportunity knocks for him in Cardiff. Um, coming up on Tuesday next week, you've got the rematch of the fight that every single hardcore fan adored in 2019, and they're back together in 2022. Uh, Anui and Daener, of course. Um, so, yeah, we're kind of thinking, what on earth are we going to put on the cover? And then you've also got, even before we mention a really good fight, super bantamweight, between um, Stephen Fulton and Daniel Roman, which, again, looks almost certain to deliver fireworks. Uh, so might be hard for me to grumble about anything this week, Alex. Even Christie. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, Fulton against Roman almost can't miss. And it seems to me I, I can't go and get the paper or walk down the shop or, or chat to someone out and about in, in any particular format, world, sport or whatever without them having an opinion on, on Anthony Joshua and who his next trainer is going to be. Uh, you can see it almost every day on, on Twitter. It's been one of the kind of longest-running sagas, as well as when we're going to see uh, Usyk against Joshua, the, the rematch. Everyone's got a, an opinion on AJ, what it is that he's doing and what it is that he isn't doing. Yeah, I mean, I've seen so many contrasting opinions um, on the appointment of... Robert Garcia as his new head coach. Um, I think out of all of the options that he had, Garcia would appear to have been one of the best fits for him. Um, the obvious concern is that the first fight did appear, by and large, to be a one-sided affair. Um, so whoever he brings in, there's only so much they can do. Um, I've seen some people now making wild predictions. Eddie Hearn, one of them, you can understand why he's doing that, saying, I'm going to say it now, Joshua will win inside the first six rounds. Um, but if Garcia is suddenly going to turn Anthony Joshua into um, just this invincible destroyer in the space of what, how long they're going to be working together by the time the fight begins, what, three three months? Then that's going to be a heck of a renovation he's done. I'm not obviously not saying that Joshua was not dangerous and he's not a heavy hitter, but go back and look at the facts. Look at his record. When was the last time he walked through anybody? He hasn't walked through anybody since he walked through Eric Molina in 2016. So since he's kind of been up to world class since then, uh, uh, Vladimir Klitschko and beyond, he's been trying to manage his stamina. He hasn't been knocking people out. 
the quickest knockouts he scored have been seven rounds. Um, so for him to then, for people then to now just making these wild predictions that Joshua is now going to walk through Alexander Usyk, who is as world class as they come, um, I think they're they're they're, they're pretty they're, they're pretty out there predictions. But of course, I think this could do wonders for Anthony Joshua's confidence. I think that's a big thing. I think there's only so much you can do with Joshua physically. Um, you're not going to suddenly make him be able to motor forward for 12 rounds without becoming tired. But what you can do is stop his mind doing mental gymnastics mid-fight and exhausting him even further. And I think that is the crucial part that Robert Garcia can play in this fight. Well, it's the mental gymnastics that go on out of the ring in the build-up to fights or just surrounding Joshua full stop that would concern me. And the big question is what it is that Robert Garcia can do about that. Is it a case of the grass seems greener or was the change absolutely essential or necessary just for Joshua psychologically? And how do you see Garcia as a fit, would you say? Quite a few parts to that question. I mean, let's let's just get a bit of background on Robert Garcia. He was a really good fighter. He won sanctioning body titles. Um, his training career, um, if you were to, if he was to put together a CV, uh, some of the leading names on it would be Chris Algieri, Nanito Denaire, Mikey Garcia, Juan Guzman, Marcus Maidana, Victor Ortiz, Kelly Pavlik, Brandon Rios, Fernando Vargas, and Brian Valoria. Um, He's known at being very, very adept at making a game plan. He's known at getting the most physically out of his fighters. Um, Joshua is no mug. He will have spent time with various trainers. Um, he will have known that he needed somebody experienced to work alongside Angel Fernandez. Angel Fernandez. Um, I mean, the thing is, yes, there's always going to be that feeling that the grass is always greener. There is always going to be a feeling, particularly after... He lost that fight in such a humbling manner to Usyk that in his mind he felt that something had to change. Um, and that the, the obvious one, as it has been for so many years, that the obvious what the the obvious thing to give is very often the trainer. Um, I mean, I found something. It's in this week's boxing news. I spoke to Robert McCracken the day before. It was sorry, it wasn't the day before. It was during fight week of the Usyk fight. And I sat down with him um, and just kind of asked him if he felt that the Usyk fight was the wisest fight to take at that particular time. Um, and he's he, he he's taken some stick before McCracken. He took he took some stick because supposedly the game plan wasn't great against um, against Usyk. Uh, he took some stick because of the way he was talking to him when he lost to Andy Ruiz. Um, but you would say that McCracken knows Joshua in a boxing capacity better than anybody knows him. Um, and I'll just read you kind of what he said and what, what I pulled out for the, for the Boxing News column this week. Um, and I was, he, when he admitted that Usyk was indeed a danger man, and McCracken said, he's smaller, he's quicker, he's a southpaw. If you leave something out there, he's going to catch you. He's very good with his counters. You've got to control the space at all times that you're in with him, and that's what Joshua has been working on. Whether the space he's in is big or small, he's got to control it. Uh, he said, the thing is, and this is when we were kind of talking about um, whether Usyk, particularly after months and months of thinking it was Tyson Fury, whether Usyk, such a tricky customer, as we all know, was the best option for Joshua at that point. 
McCracken turned around and said, the thing is with Anthony, you get, you never get into the conversation of avoiding someone. It's not in his mindset. There's never a suggestion of swerving anyone, even if you, as his trainer, wanted to. He's a very positive person, and that's his mindset. Big Josh does what he does well. If he uses his attributes smartly and sets things up well, he should win. That's what he's got to do. Control, control himself and control the opponent. It will be a great challenge and a fight he's more than capable of winning. And do you know what? That was, I thought at the time, it was a really honest assessment and it's Robert McCracken down to a T. I mean, he's a fellow Midlander like me. Whenever I talk to McCracken, it's like talking to one of my cousins. Not only does he look like him, he sounds exactly like him as well. <laughs> so I always find it almost quite comforting. There's, there's never any sense of, of false bravado with Robert McCracken. And crucially there, unlike so many trainers that we see who can just get so involved, it's ridiculous. There was absolutely no promise of victory. And I do just wonder if behind the scenes where Robert McCracken is nothing if not completely honest and fair, if that kind of, if he wasn't telling Joshua that he would 100% the rematch, win the rematch, that that ultimately cost him his job. Um, whether Robert Garcia will get more out of him than Robert McCracken could, I don't know. And whether Robert McCracken himself was starting to just get a little bit tired of the team growing and growing and growing. It was no longer a case of one-on-one. Um, there was this, there was so many more people involved. Um, so you can completely understand if McCracken had kind of thought their relationship had gone as far as it could as well. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with Robert Garcia. Personally, as we have said on this podcast several times, um, personally, I would have preferred to have seen Anthony Joshua go back down a level or two and rebuild his confidence, and particularly if he's got a new trainer, just to allow that relationship to bed in. Because as good as somebody is, it's very rare that you meet someone and you just hit it off immediately. Um, we've seen it with, I mean, the, the, the example that we've used before was Manny Stewart's relationship with both Lennox Lewis and Vladimir Klitschko. Of course, he very early on in the Vladimir Klitschko relationship, they lost a fight, but it took time before that everything that Stewart was kind of drilling into Klitschko, that Klitschko was able to um, fulfil inside a boxing ring. And I just wonder if August, because as far as I understand it now, the fight, the Usyk rematch has been put back to mid-August, between now and August, which is still only two months away, if that is enough time so that they are gelling and all the new drills that Joshua will have to be learning and repeating, if that is enough time for those to bear fruit. Um, but we'll see. It's a very ballsy statement of intent from Team Joshua. Um, and I think if they were going to get rid of McCracken, I can't think of anybody better than Robert Garcia to step in and get the best out of AJ. Um, Usyk as well. I mean, we don't know. Pff, what's Usyk been up to the last few months? He's He's been having a horrendous time. So it will probably help him as well to have a little bit more time to prepare. Yeah. Where's Usyk at mentally? And... What is the mindset? What is the mental state of Joshua going back into a boxing ring? Too many voices. That was one of the criticisms, wasn't it? Both around and during the fight in defeat to Usyk. How's that going to play out as well? How's the relationship going to bond and develop between Joshua, Garcia and Hernandez, who of course was given such credit for the, the Renaissance performance in the rematch with Andy Ruiz and how much of that really crucial sentence that 
Rod McCracken, Rod McCracken said to you previously about Joshua having control of himself and control of the distance. And it's that first line that I, I've said on the pod before, I think is the most important one when you're talking about Anthony Joshua, control of himself. And how ironic, Matt, and we'll go into this as we build up to the fight in the height of the summer in a few months' time, but how ironic that when you go back to his his coming out party at Wembley against Klitschko all those years ago, what are we, nearly half a dozen years ago or so now, that it was it was Klitschko the overthinker who was his own undoing. When Joshua, having been knocked down, was there at his mercy to be stopped and the fight to be won and a little piece of career history to be made, perhaps, that it was the chess-playing thinker who allowed the moment to pass and yet it was Joshua, the young buck, just doing, not thinking, who came out on top and got the job done. And now Joshua's become, whether he plays chess or not, he's become the thinker in and around the boxing ring. And I'm going to be intrigued, Matt, to see how all of, that, all of that's going to play out in a few months' time. Yeah, likewise. Um, I mean, you know, sit, sitting down with, with, with Joshua when we do with the media clusters and since that Klitschko fight... He said on more than one occasion he does he doesn't want to go back and experience the hell that he experienced against Klitschko. That is the most difficult thing I think for him moving forward. It's all well and good for us outside the rope saying why is he not just letting his hands go? Why is he not just going for it? He knows what happens when he goes for it. He knows that he absolutely leaves himself empty and drained, and he can't refuel for around maybe two. I mean, I think it was round nine before he started to get his wits back about him in the Klitschko fight. Um, but whether he would feel happier now just going all guns blazing and just if he doesn't get Usyk out of there, he doesn't get him out of there, but at least he knows he gave it everything he got, whether that's now going to be his new mindset, only time will tell. But I think when it gets to it in the thick of a fight that he will always subconsciously or consciously put the brakes on if he feels if he starts to feel tired a recent example we saw with it was was Kubrat Pulev where Pulev it looked like wasn't going to get out the third round um, and in the fourth and fifth and sixth rounds Joshua was just taking steps back until he went again and he found his second wind in the eighth and ninth um, and and that's the biggest stumbling block for me when people are talking about that he's going to blow Usyk out the water Usyk is no, no Pulev in all honesty, he's no 41-year-old Vladimir Klitschko either. Um, he is going to be very, very difficult to get out of there, even if he's in a position where he's hurt and reeling in the first place. I'm not saying Joshua can't land one and knock him cold. I'm not saying that. But I think if Usyk is in trouble, I think he's so very, very canny that very quickly he will be able to turn that to his advantage. Um, but of course, as time gets... As, time, as we get closer to the fight, that's when we'll start really drilling down into, into what we believe will happen. But of course, we're in a situation with whether it's now or the eve of the fight. I said it before with the recent fight, unless you've been in camp with Anthony Joshua and Robert Garcia for six weeks and observing how they're developing every day, you are really predicting something that you have no real evidence to draw from. So it's going to be a difficult prediction for, for, the, for those of us that are in the predicting boxing business 
because we just don't know what Anthony Joshua is going to look like under Robert Garcia. And one thing that was uh, usually always easy to predict that Deontay Wilder would knock his opponents out. Most of them have gone that way. He's talking about coming back to do exactly the same uh, again. There's been lots of sort of swirling chat about what Wilder would or, or wouldn't do. But uh, I, I suspect certainly in the eyes of fans, Matt, that'll be a welcome re-edition, reintroduction to the heavyweight landscape. Deontay Wilder in the heavyweight mix is indeed a really welcome um, addition, isn't he? Um, I think, I mean, I must admit, I thought the noises he was making in the weeks after the Tyson Fury fight, the third Tyson Fury fight, the manner in which he obviously gave it everything he had and still came up short against Tyson Fury, that I thought that with the millions that he would have in the bank and the family around him that he adores, that he may say, that's it, goodbye, I've I've had enough. Um, but boxing is boxing, isn't it? It draws people back in when they least expect it. And I just think that, that, that Wilder just can't walk away just yet. What fighter he is, I don't know. It's easy to go back and look at him pre-Tyson Fury and be drawn into that wild, swinging, exciting, concussive style of his and automatically think he'll be just like that. There's every chance he won't be. There's every chance that he too will have some serious psychological hurdles that he'll have to get over in order to compete at the top level again. Because he was somebody that believed he was invincible. He was someone that believed all he had to do was hit someone on the chin and very shortly he would be able to raise his arms in victory. And he saw against Tyson Fury that that simply isn't the case. There are people out there, there are human beings out there that can take his power. Um, So we may see him second-guess himself in the ring. Um, But he's a very different kind of fighter to Anthony Joshua. And I think he's got a very different mindset to Anthony Joshua. And I think you throw Deontay Wilder in with anybody at the top of the heavyweight division that you have to give him a puncher's chance. But my own personal opinion on it is, is that I will be surprised if we see the Deontay Wilder of old again. I'm not so sure. I don't think it's quite like Mike Tyson, the original Tyson, when the aura was was shattered and initially by Buster Douglas and and then just the wear and tear and the the accumulation of life started to chip away at him physically and mentally I don't, I don't think Wilder's like that and I, I do think as you say he's he's made of pretty stern combative stuff you've you've seen that even in the two defeats both in the ring and out of the ring afterwards you've seen what Wilder's all about he is he is combative and he is fighter through and through. And I, I think he'll he'll be showing that. And I suppose the how many people are there out there barred the likes of Tyson Fury, um, maybe an Usyk, who, who could expose him again? That Those are questions for other days, but while they're looking to get back in the mix and lots of fights to preview and look ahead to. Before we do, Matt, just a very quickly look back. Javon to beat um, Rolando Romero and Lara beat Gary O'Sullivan. It was almost as prescribed. What was it? Were they as straightforward as you you expected them to be? Um, yeah, I mean, I thought I thought Romero was a little bit better than I thought. He yeah, did have some moments of success. I didn't think he was value, good value for... I think one of the judges had him up uh, at the point of the stoppage. Two of the judges had Davies ahead. I thought Davies was, was, was just in control. 
doing what he does. I thought Davis, again, just showed flashes of the explosive talent that he is. And all it makes you want to see is is Davis in a fight that we're talking about here. One of these fights where you just don't know if he's going to win rather than constantly being in fights where it's just a no-brainer to pick him. Um, so hopefully, hopefully with this new thirst for well-matched fights, Javonta Davis will will get on that theme and we'll see him in with someone threatening in his next fight. Uh, Ryan Garcia, of course, was there at ringside. Sir, it'd be a great fight to make. That'd be a really interesting fight to make. Davis versus the winner of Cambosis Haney. It should just almost happen as a matter of course, shouldn't it? Um, but all in all, you still have to be very impressed with with Gavonta Davis. He He does look like... He's a very special talent indeed, but we still haven't seen um we we, we we still haven't seen him against we haven't seen him in a 50-50 fight, and we need to. Um but you know, I, I kind of scoffed a bit last week about his appeal, and it's yeah, I think I might have been wrong actually. I think that was the first sellout crowd of since since the of at the Brooklyn Arena arena since it since it opened ten years ago. Got people like flipping Madonna turning up to see him, um, which is just so he's probably pretty popular. If Madonna can be bothered to go along and watch a boxing match, um, I've, I haven't seen any any kind of pay per view figures as yet. So I, I, he's certainly not at Floyd Mayweather levels. The only thing that will take him there is 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 is, is the big fights. And it'll be interesting if we're, if we're going to see some channel hopping and promotional hopping over the course of the next few months. Devin Haney, of course, uh, has been working with, with Matchroom and and Dazon and, and now he's he's going to appear on, on top rank ESPN and, and, and Sky Sports in the early hours of what is it, Sunday morning in Melbourne against Judge Combosos. Uh, Garcia, by the way, he is uh, headlining against Fortuna uh, on Dazon on July the 16th. So Garcia Fortuna seems to be uh, made for July 16th and then Maybe later in the autumn, Tank Davis is going to appear on the horizons. Immediately this weekend, we've got loads going on. Cardina against Ogawa in Cardiff. Fulton against Danny Roman. Stephen Fulton, Danny Roman. That's going to be an absolute cracker on Showtime on Saturday in Minnesota. And then we move on to the end of the weekend and into next week. Cambosos against Devon Haney. And then Noya Anuni, uh, Noya Anui, I should say, in Donaire on Tuesday out in Japan in a a rematch of their just wonderful, sparkling, power-punching special fight of 2019. And unlike, I suppose, your point about Joshua maybe not wanting to go back to the dark place, I, I don't really sense stylistically and because of their respective punch pad and what they've done since that 2019 blockbuster in the World Boxing Super Series, I don't sense that a Nui or Denaire have it in them to be tentative in any sort of rematch, Matt, in the same way that perhaps other fighters might have been historically? No, I'm fascinated by this one. And I'm fascinated to see what Anui looks like. I mean, the first fight was far more competitive than I think anybody thought it would be. Um, and you can go back now and you can you can reference Anui's horrific eye injury that he suffered in the fight. If he hadn't have suffered from that, would it have been as competitive? Denaire, you thought, was on a downward trajectory many years ago. I think you can go back to when he fought Nicholas Walters 
Um, after that, he lost to Carl Frampton in a really good competitive fight, but you didn't feel that he then was going to come back and have this tremendous resurgence that he has. And then after the Inui fight, at the age that he was at, he had absolutely no business going back and posting two really impressive performances, particularly against Nordin and Bali, who was unbeaten going in. Um, knocked him out in the fourth round, scored another four-round win since then as well, Donair. Um so the, you, 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 you're kind of waiting for, 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 for Donaire to almost fall to pieces in a boxing ring um, with everything that he's been through. Um, but he's a tremendous character. And Nui, likewise, they're both such likeable uh, people, such likeable um, personalities. There's very little bitterness within them. There's very little uh, trash talking that comes out of their mouths. Um, it's all very, very respectful. And then the way they fight in the ring is a very honourable way of fighting as well. I think it's highly unlikely that we can get a carbon copy of the first fight. My own instinct is that I think that Anui will stop Denaire this time. But Denaire has proved me wrong on so many occasions, I certainly won't be laying any money on it. Yeah, he was hurt, wasn't he? He was in the fifth and sixth rounds, Denaire, first time around. He was badly hurt, badly shaken. A great credit to him that he managed to find a way through that and come back strong uh, as well. The, the 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 punching power, the precision, the the craft, and the clever nature of that whole technical and powerful affair first time around was just spellbinding. I, you and I spoke to Callis Ireland, didn't we, in one of the early pods, and and I think we were both saying it was you know one of the best fights we've ever seen. And he he was talking about it other fights that he enjoyed more because he felt that Donaire and Inouye were making mistakes and that's why it was so exciting. I, I, I just thought it was high tech on every level, that first fight. Um, the size of Donaire compared to Inouye was was quite notable, but the, the, the way that Inouye varied it up constantly throughout that fight and they both had a couple of knockout wins uh, since. And you have to feel sort of 10-year age gap between them. I mean, Donaire's... He's defying time and logic by going down in weight and arguably looking as good as ever before. Can he keep doing it? Oh, you'd, you'd, you'd think not. And it is, it, it really does defy all boxing logic. We see fighters, they get to their mid-30s. For some, that's the end. There's nothing they can do. They cannot reinvent themselves. But we see certain fighters we saw... Bernard Hopkins, who admittedly was always very canny and cute, but he got cannier and cuter. We saw Manny Pacquiao kind of just learn to pace himself a little bit more. He was more of a boxer puncher than just the out-and-out slayer that he was at his peak. But with Denaire, he's still knocking top-class opponents out. Um, he's not quite the same fighter that he was, but... Yeah, he's doing something that, that that fighters don't do. Even like Roberto Duran would be losing fights here and there. And now and again, he'd managed to turn in just this one supersonic performance like he did against Iran Barkley, for example. Uh, but what Donaire is doing um, is incredible. And surely it can't. Surely it can't continue. Um, Anui, you wonder if the fights that he's had since... The Denaire fight will be 
not ideal preparation for this. Jason Maloney, Jason Maloney, a very good fighter, current top fiver in the division, um, and he made that look easy. Uh, but then he's had two kind of fights, uh, much against uh, against lower level of opposition, Anui. Whereas Denair had a nice break, then came back, looked really fresh against good levels of opposition. Um, so you wonder if that will serve Denair well. But ultimately, I think when it when they get back in the ring, I think it will be exciting. I don't think you'll be able to take your eyes off it again. But I think ultimately we'll see that age play a huge factor in the outcome. Okay, interesting. It's amazing how that little slice of luck in the early stages of the World Boxing Super Series against Ryan Burnett. Amazing how big a role that's played in this renaissance in Denier's career, isn't it? Because, you know, that injury to Burnett, who was flying high at the time, it was on the back of the Frampton defeat in a really hard, compelling fight. I know he hurt Frampton in that fight. We'll have to speak to Carl about that one time because I, I think that's one of the, the best boxing poker hands ever played in a ring that night by Frampton. I think he was really badly hurt and he, he managed to not let Denier know and he managed to, he, well, he managed the moment. He managed those moments and managed to get through. That was class from Frampton in every way. But, you know, Denier came out of that defeat in against another young, hungry, improving Northern Irishman, injury to Burnett. Suddenly he goes forward and comes out. I mean, you listened to the commentary first time around in 2019. It's really interesting. It gives you a real idea of the time and the place about what expectations were. Anui the monster, Denier the older fighter, tail end of his career, coming off a, a few defeats. The, the narrative was that Denier performed way, way, way above expectations that night. And he's continued, I suppose, to do it since. I think he performed way, way above expectations when he fought Cole Frampton. And I think many people were picking Denier um, to win that fight either. And he was very competitive against Cole Frampton. I think on the cards, it was kind of like six points across the board, six-point advantage for Cole Frampton. But they, that, that, that was a heck of a fight. But we go back just to... Uh, just about 18 months before that, he'd lost to, Denaire had lost to Jesse Magdalano. And then before that, there was the Nicholas Walters fight where he was stopped. Um, and I remember after the loss to Carl Frampton and thinking, well, that is a wonderful way to kind of go out. Uh, okay, you haven't won the fight, but you've reminded everybody what a warrior you are, what a special fighter you are, and that you can still compete at the top level. Now is the perfect time to wave goodbye. And then when I heard that he was going to drop down to the bantamweight division again at his age. And bantamweight uh, <laughs> would have been like a lot, you'd be losing eight pounds. When you only weigh 118 pounds, that's a, that's a, that's a lot of weight um, the, the, to lose, particularly at that time of life. And I remember writing something in Boxing News at the time saying, this is a, an absolutely appalling idea um, that, that, that this is going to happen. And then, of course, yes. And the Ryan Burnett fight, Burnett 19 and 0 at the time, um, and it was just thought that Burnett would win that fight. Uh, and you can argue that, that, that Denaire got lucky fairly close at the time when, when Burnett had to pull out with a back injury. But um, yes, it, that, that, that was very much a pivotal moment in the rebirth of Denita Denaire. It's a Hall of Fame career, no doubt about it. Right, how does it unfold? I, I must admit, I think anything could happen. I think they can both hurt each other. Um, obviously, Inui's the fresher. But Denaire... He's going to be trying to walk him on to maybe the big left hook or, or something else all night, isn't he? And it's he's fascinating. I, I'm leaning to Inui on points, but I, I could see just about any result here. I'm going to go. I'm going to go for a stoppage win for 
Renewi, I think watching the first fight again, as I did a few weeks ago, um, it's just a tremendously exciting fight. But I think a lot of the excitement at the time was just that Denaire was going above and beyond. Um, although Renewi was in trouble at points, he was clearly hurt. Um, that there was never, you never thought that, that Denaire was going to win. Um, and I think that is really alongside the fact that Denaire is now two and a half years older. Um, why I'm going to pick Anui to almost, I think, finish what he started. And he, he nearly achieved a few times in that first fight. And I think he'll get the job done in the second one. Yeah, I think you, you could be right, actually. Maybe this is the finally the night where it all just uh, comes to rest with Donaire touching 40. Uh, before that, down in Melbourne, great sporting city. Uh, Melbourne is, uh, I must admit, I, I went there in 2006. What an experience that was. Fantastic place and a real sporting uh, city. Uh, with a, a very kind of multicultural um, environment as well. And George Kambosos is, is part of that. I mean, lots of Croatians, Greeks over, over there. And he'll have plenty of support uh, there with the visitor, Devin Haney. He's he's intriguing, this Kambosos character, isn't he? I mean, he has been winding up and prodding and poking Haney all week ever since he got he got down under in the build-up and the, the kind of war of words and the psychological motivation has just ramped up a notch in the, the last few days as well. Is Cambosos the, the kind of fighting man and psychological machine more impressive than the boxer himself or or what? Where's he at in your estimation? It's too, it's too early to say. There's, there's, there's two trains of thought here and one is that he was flattered by the Teofimo Lopez win in that Lopez fought like a man possessed. He fought very wildly. He was knockout minded from the very start, came out like a steam train kind of famously in that first round and Cambosis weathered the storm, took two steps back and then there was that slingshot right hand that that dropped Lopez um, and turned the fight on its head and stunned everybody and that kind of set the scene. I think the most impressive thing from Cambosis in that fight, though, was not the fact that he dropped Lopez. It was the manner in which he got up in the 10th round. And then he looked in all sorts of trouble. That was where you thought that Lopez was going to get on top. You thought at that point the fight was still just about close enough for Lopez to put in a massive effort over the last two rounds and either stop uh, Cambosis or do enough to win on the cards. Yet Cambosis wouldn't have that bit down on his gum shield and just was incredible, I thought, in those last two rounds. But you could say that Lopez's approach very much flattered Cambosis's style in that fight and almost opened the door to what was one of the upsets and fights of the year by the way that he was fighting. If he was to have that fight another nine times, I don't doubt that he would fight differently every single time. So you could say that Cambosis could be found out by someone as slick and as sharp shooting as Devin Haney. However, we've seen it several times where fighters are not really expected to excel at the highest level and then they get to the highest level and they take a look around and they realise it's really where they're supposed to be. And you can see fighters get better and better and better when they are at this level. So Cambosis could actually be even better than we think he is. Um, he's even better than he showed in the Lopez fight and he could turn in a superb performance here. Um, I've been going backwards and forwards on on on, on what I think is going to happen here. I think if Devon Haney is as good as he tells us he is, if he is as good 
as he thinks he is, and if he's as good as he has shown in flashes, then you would think that Cambosis is almost made for him and that Haney should win kind of an 8-4, 7-5 kind of fight on the cards um, with Cambosis just not coming forward, winning certain rounds on industry alone, um, but Haney just producing the cleaner, sharper, better work that will impress the judges and get the decision, even on away ground. Um but also, as Devin Haney showed us anything, really, to suggest that he can do that. Haney, only 23 years old, and despite all the promise, despite all the bluster, despite the promises of greatness, we're yet to see that he can go ahead and keep those promises inside a boxing ring. As yet, that's not really been his fault. He's met some criticism in recent years. I remember talking about his fight against Yuriorkis Gamboa in November 2020 on this podcast, where he was kind of taking a bit of stick in that fight because it was after Haney was kind of saying he was the best lightweight in the world. He was going to go on and prove himself to be a legend in the sport of boxing. Um, and it came not long after Teofimo Lopez had beaten um, Vasily Lomachenko. It came just a week or so after Gavonta Davis had knocked out Leo Santa Cruz. And then you had Devin Haney struggling with Yuri Orkis Gamboa. But ultimately, these are all learning fights, you would think, for Devin Haney. He won pretty much every round against Yuri Orkis Gamboa. But then, he, of course, he had that fight against Jorge Linares. I went back and watched a bit of this this week as well. And against Jorge Linares, there was that moment in the 10th round, right at the end of the round, where Linares caught him with a wicked combination. And Haney was all at sea. And it's that famous moment where Linares ushers... Haney back to his own stall with a smile on his face, almost welcoming him up to the kind of highest level. But ultimately, Haney got through that, and I thought Haney was more impressive than most people thought against Jojo Diaz. One of the interesting things there with Jojo Diaz is that Jojo Diaz immediately afterwards, because all the talk there was about Haney-Cambosis fight, Diaz congratulated Haney, and he was asked, what do you think he will do with George Cambosis? And he said, he will walk through George Cambosis. Of course, you know... He, that that's that's in the mindset of the beaten fighter to say the person that's be, just beaten them um, is would have to, is, has to be like almost invincible if they've just beaten them. But I still thought it was an interesting observation. Um, but you do just wonder if if Cambosis just how confident he is and just the self belief he's got if he's going to win this fight and if he's just going to bully Haney out of it. I saw an interesting comparison on social media. Is this going to be? a Marcus Maidana versus Adrian Broner kind of fight where Haney is just found wanting against someone whose desire and relentlessness just won't stop. Um, Cambosis is not going to want to give this title up in Melbourne. Um, and sometimes fights do come down to that psychological edge and who is the stronger mentally. And Cambosis, you would think, is the stronger mentally. But then you go back and you drill into Devin Haney's ring record. And there's this notion that Devin Haney is not going to be able to cope being out in Australia. Yet, interestingly, 15, or was it 10? I think it was 10 of his first 15 fights were out in Mexico in little small halls or bars against Mexican opponents. And everybody in the bar or the club or the hall, was almost baying for Devin Haney's blood. They were all supporting the Mexican fighter. And this was very much a conscious decision from Team Haney, who, of course, famously kind of plotted his own route 
where his father, Bill Haney, um, would be paying for his fights to be recorded and then broadcast solely on YouTube. Um, they were not really going out to to American broadcasters like other prospects were. He was not being treated as this little kid gold dust like other, other prospects were. It was very much a project to build Devin Haney, build his, his, his mental strength um, and not be tied down to any one promoter. Um, and then when he came back, and there's, a, there's an article with him, there's a quote with him from around the time where he kind of came back to America. And he said, while I was out in Mexico, he said, the reaction of the crowd was just so hostile that you're kind of thinking, even though in my head I'm thinking, well, I'm winning absolutely every exchange, but I'm doubting myself as to whether I'm actually winning this fight because of the reaction of the crowd. Then he comes back to America and everybody is just cheering his every move. And he said, this is just so easy now. This is just effortless for me. This is all just like second nature. Um, so, of course, it's going to be very, very different in an arena with 50 or 60,000 Australian fans. But to suggest that it's going to be a massive disadvantage for Devin Haney, who was, who was experiencing hostile crowds from the age of 17... I think is, is, is perhaps a little bit off the mark. More interesting, of course, might be the fact that Bill Haney's father is not out there with him. Ben Davison is not out there with him. Both had visa issues. So is that, is that going to play a part? And of course, it's going to be Zab Judah's father who will be the chief cornerman for this. But Zab Judah's father is known to Devin Haney as, as, as grandpa or, or grandpa or whatever. These, these two go back a long time. He's been involved in the setters up. He will feel exceptionally comfortable with him in the corner. Otherwise, let's be frank, he wouldn't have gone through with the fight. This isn't like Bill Haney couldn't get a visa yesterday. This has been going on for a long old time. Uh, so he could have made that decision at that point, as fighters have in the past, that I'm not going to go through with this fight because key members of my team can't be there. He knew the situation and he has decided to go ahead with this fight. So I think any suggestion that Haney is kind of mentally weak, again, is perhaps misguided. But this was all before he had experienced this fight week where you have just got George Cambosis in mischief overdrive. Absolutely fascinating. He's an impressive character, Cambosis. He's in, he is in control of himself. He is so sure about himself his own ability and what it is that he can and perhaps what he can't do as well. And as you said, that 10th round sort of gathering and, and response when he looked like he was in serious bother against Tio Lopez when they, when they fought, that was the stuff of champions. So although Cambosos has won his last three by split decision and those have come against, you know, Tio Lopez, who perhaps wasn't at his best, Lee Selby towards the end of his career, and, and Mickey Bay, who you know, perhaps wouldn't be in the discussion when we're, we're talking about the very best world-class operators. So the form lines aren't quite as impressive as Cambosos is, but he has got big match temperament, Matt, hasn't he? And you fancy that he will do whatever he has to do. I, I'm with Haney because I just think he's got the better skill set. I think he's got the advantage in speed, uh, youth, and I, I, I do think there's a there's a big, big performance in Haney. But I'm not going to be surprised if Cambosos just kind of manages the fight in however way is too strong mentally, perhaps physically too, but mentally in particular, 
and just finds too many answers and creates too many issues and problems for Haney to solve. But it's going to be fascinating. I think Haney's got a little touch of class. The billionaire boxer quote is kind of following him round, and I I'll, I'll probably won't forget it for years. And it's followed him around, but he's still got a touch of class about him. And I, I think that kind of technical, tactical speed advantage that he has might be the difference, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I'm leaning towards Devin Haney. I obviously picked Tiafimo Lopez huge before the Lopez Cambosis fight. I didn't give Cambosis a prayer. <laughs> he looked impressive yeah. at all against Lee Selby. I just, I just, and other bits I'd seen him in spots. I just thought he's 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 made for for Lopez. So I think I'm going to pick Devin Haney for this particular fight. If Cambosis looks impressive and wins. Then it might be the last time I pick against Cambosis for a long <laughs> do you think time. He's so, the, do you think he's the kind of guy, Matt, who who raises his game or who is just getting better? This is where we'll find out. This is this is where we'll find out. If he looks good here, then we know that we were kind of wrong all along. Um, but there is still, still at the moment, we've only got that one fight that we're kind of. We're drawing on in terms of Cambosis winning this fight. If the Lopez fight hadn't happened and it would have been a Haney versus Cambosis fight straight after Lee Selby, I can't imagine there'd be anybody on planet Earth picking Cambosis to win this fight. So Cambosis, without a shadow of a doubt, has got the best standout win. But I think that there's more on Haney's record um, to suggest that he can go up levels and levels. But we'll see. I wanted something interesting as well when I was going back and, and, and writing preview for this fight is that you go back and you look at interviews with um, Cambosis when just before um, he was going to fight Tiafimo Lopez and he was asked to kind of rate um, all of all of his potential lightweight rivals and he had good things to say about Gavonta Davis. He had good things to say about Vasily Lomachenko. He had good things to say about Ryan Garcia and he even had good things to say about Tiafimo Lopez. But with Devin Haney, he said he's the most beatable out of the lot. And I think he said that in something like 2020. So something else interesting with Cambos is he's been keeping notes on all of his lightweight, his potential lightweight rivals for a while now. So he's going to be drawing on these notes as to where he thinks he can exploit Devin Haney. Uh, really good fight. I'm really looking forward to this one. I, I mean, I think strictly speaking, when you, if you had, which you often do, Matt, don't you? You almost have a balance sheet. <laughs> or the, you know, <laughs> looking at it mathematically or scientifically, the pros and the cons. You've talked about that on the pod before. And if you look at the balance sheet in this one, home advantage, big crowd, the psychological warfare, the run of form that he's on. I mean, really, if you look at the balance sheet, everything, if you're having a bet, it points you towards Cambosis. It really does. And it does. And it makes you then wonder if, <laughs> ev even though... You and I, I would like to think, are quite level-headed, quite sensible. We know what to believe and what not to. If by picking Devin Haney, we have been drawn purely into the hype subconsciously because we haven't seen Devin Haney look like absolute dynamite since he's been operating in and around the top level for the last year or two. So are we? Are <laughs> we? Have we allowed, it us, uh, allowed ourselves to be blinded by the Devin Haney hype machine without even knowing it. The double bluff, the double, double bluff. We've been done. <laughs> We've been kippered. <laughs> but I'm sure it's the kind of fight that actually people listening now are, are, are 
thinking along the same lines, but differently. It's, it's exactly that kind of fight. And it's going to be intriguing to see what it is that, that comes out. I think what we could have is a very, very close competitive fight that goes right down to the wire and ends up either with a split decision or a controversial one. And are you worried at all about Haney? You know, we think back to Jeff Horn and Pacquiao all those years ago. Are, are you thinking about how hard it might be to get a result down under? It's one of those fights where you wouldn't be remotely surprised if it's an absolute honker of a decision. Um, <laughs> Don't say that. Where, Don't say that. But it, 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 the ingredients are there for it to be an absolute honker. Either way, you know, I, I'm not saying it's necessarily going to be a honker in favour of, of Cambosis either. It is just one of those fights that, that really, really could upset a few people. <laughs> but delight us as fans, because I think it'll be fascinating and competitive to watch. Very quickly, before we move on, we've got Frotch Groves 2 coming up in this week. Rob McCracken, of course, a key player in that, starting in our news lines regarding AJ. Joe Cordina against Kenichi Ogawa. Opportunity for uh, Cordina, such a sharp, fast stylist, probably now down at his right weight, super featherweight. A lot of people... I know my old pal Barry Jones loves Cordina. I think he's so talented. Is he? Is he? Is he good enough for this right here, right now? I think he is. Yeah, I, I do think he is. I do fancy him in this fight. Um, the thing is, he hasn't stepped up and he hasn't fought anybody in and around this level. He hasn't fought anybody in the in the top ten. He's not. He's not ranked in our top ten. Um, Cordina, but I've always been really impressed with him. I think his level of dedication, I think the way that he did realise, there's a, there's a feature in this week's Boxing News where he was talking about, I'm trying to think what his last fight was when he was up at lightweight. That's it, it was Gavin Gwynn. And he said even though he wasn't hurt by the punches that Gavin Gwynn was landing, he was aware that his own were not having enough of an effect on his opponent. And he knew that if he was then to move up the levels at lightweight, that he may struggle simply because that his, his punches were not having the effect that they would have on, uh, say, super featherweights, where he is now, obviously. Um, and I think we have seen what appears an improvement in his punching power. It bothers him that people say that he can't punch. Um, if Cordina can get it all right, on the night, I think that he might win this fight, um, but it's it, it it is a it is kind of a jump into the unknown for him. But Cordina is so self-aware, he's so intelligent, um, and so so fiercely determined that I think I think at home in Cardiff with the crowd behind him that, that he could get a result here. And also at the weekend on Showtime on Saturday, Stephen Fulton against Danny Roman. That could be an absolute cracker. Really looking forward to that super bantamweight. I think Fulton, if he can, if he can just resist getting involved, and I think he can. He's done it against fighters who could have sucked him in in, in Figueroa and Angelo Leo in his last two. He's unbeaten in 20, of course, Philly fighter Stephen Fulton, but fast hands, fast combinations. He can be drawn into a scrap, but he's got the intellect, I think, to stay out of that. And Roman, who has rebounded with a, a couple of wins uh, since he was uh, beaten by Akhmedaliev in a good fight, actually, against Akhmedaliev, former talented uh, amateur. Um, I, I think Fulton's just a bit quicker, slightly more talented. Um, 
But uh, it's going to be an interesting one. Fascinating fight that to look forward to. Another one on a fantastic weekend stroke into next week. Yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, Fulton talked to um, Phil Rogers, who's done some great stuff for us recently. I know I've mentioned Phil before, but just again, thank you, Phil. He's done some, he has done some absolutely great stuff for Boxing News recently, but he spoke to Stephen Fulton uh, either early this week or, or, or last week. I'm not sure when he spoke to him. But anyway, Fulton is talking about kind of the fickle nature of boxing and the, the way that he said, you know, I've just come through two really exciting uh, fights against top-level opposition. I mean, you could say he was one of the fighters of 2021, Stephen Fulton. He says, but people are now just criticising me because of I look too beatable or I was taking too many too many punches. He more or less says, I'm not fighting for the fans anymore. I'm going to fight the way I want to fight. Whether that means the way he wants to fight is the way that he fought against Figueroa or whether that means he wants to add a little bit more safety to his game, only time will tell. I fancy him big time against uh, Daniel Roman. I think Roman is probably a little bit past his best. Um, but and we speak we speak to Daniel Roman as well. I mean, this week's boxing news, you just can't miss it, folks. Don't miss it. Um, but yeah, Roman is just saying he's, he's eager to kind of get back to the top and he just sees this as not an easy fight, but he's always seen it as a winnable one. Um, but I just... There's, there's something about Stephen Fulton that I really, really like. I like I like his personality. I've never met him or spoke to him. I would certainly like to. Um, I thoroughly enjoy watching his fights, and he just has that bit of something that suggests he too has got new levels to find, and I think he could go on to become quite something quite special in the sport. Yeah, I think he'll put on a show. I think he'll win by decision, and I think he'll put on a show, Fulton. That uh, one of the fights on a really busy spell for boxing fans. Thanks to, to so much of you getting in touch via iTunes as well. Loads of uh, good ratings coming in as well. Thanks to Daily James Francis, who got in touch. Thanks for that uh, really uh, lovely uh, message there. Uh, says that the pod's the real deal. Great stuff. Uh, thanks also to Dassey. Uh, hyphen PB, who excitedly looks forward to the, the show each week. Phil the Power Clayton, a uh, pod that is classed throughout, uh, says Phil. Thank you. David Stanway, uh, enjoying the pod as well. Uh, Albion Ant, uh, best boxing pod out there. Uh, Favourite boxing pon- podcast for JGG. Uh, Lewis Kelly, uh, unbiased, balanced and knowledgeable, really enjoys it. And Scrimmers has been in touch and I'll get to that when we're discussing the news lines for next week. Thanks to so much of you for Uh, those ratings, the reviews, and plenty more of you can get in touch as well. Please do that. And as ever, we'll dive into the emails, I promise you, but the opening bell podcast at gmail.com. And of course, we'll have more reaction pods coming up with Darren Reese. I think the first one uh, went down well and more of that will be coming up as well. So if you want to put yourself on Darren's list, then you can get in touch with us either on Twitter or Darren Reese on Twitter or the opening bell podcast at gmail.com. Dot com And it may well be to, to talk about your memories of some of the, the fights that we deal with in this week as we trawl down memory lane. And this week, we go back to 2014. This week is coming up next. Yes, 2014, the 31st of May 2014. I remember it so well. It was at Wembley Stadium. Yes, it was Frotch Groves 2. I was um, high up in the uh, media press box, Matt, where you where you watched Fury against White uh, from. It was a rather surreal experience, I must say, not watching a fight from ringside for the first time. How spoilt 
I have and had become. But uh, Frotchgrove's two, uh, of course, on the back of their controversial um, and uh, special fight of, of the November of the previous year. There was so much going on in the build-up to both both fights, and, and particularly this on the back of, of what happened previously. I look back on this fight, and I, I'm not sure. I know that, you know, kind of... Frotch will bang on, used used to famously bang on about the amount of people that are in Wembley Stadium. And I know that we've had more people in Wembley Stadium subsequently for Joshua Klitschko and Fury versus White. But I just wonder, have we had a fight like this that captured everybody's attention? Because it was a British, bona fide, genuine not manufactured. This was no pantomime. This was a genuine, genuine grudge match. Have we had a fight that's captured everybody's imagination and attention since as big as this one? Um, It was huge at the time. Everybody was talking about it. Absolutely everybody. Um, And it was one that I was just so eager to see. I watched this one from the comfort of my living room. Tris Dixon was still the editor of Boxing News at this point. um, And he went along to this one. but I remember speaking to Carl Froch several times in the build-up, and I remember speaking to Carl Froch when this fight was confirmed because it was the only fight that mattered for either of them after the first one. It was just a case, it doesn't matter if you want to fight Andre Ward again, doesn't matter if you want to fight Gennady Golovkin, doesn't matter if you want to step up and fight Kovalev. It's got to be, it's got to be George Groves again. And he was kind of saying, yeah, I've just, I've just got to stop this noise about George Groves again. And we were talking... And we were talking about how he was going to approach it, his training camp, etc. And then how he was going to approach press conferences. And all of a sudden, he just went, oh, my God, have I, have, have I got to do this all again? And just the thought of that mental turmoil of, of dealing with George Groves, not necessarily in the ring, but dealing with the press conferences and the, and the, and the teasing and the torment. Um, you know, credit to both of them for taking this rematch. It was a huge, huge occasion. It absolutely was. And of course, you know, Groves did a number on Froch first time around, didn't he, in the in the build-up? You remember that, I think famously, that when they were both on Sky Sports, I think it would be the old ringside show, wasn't it? And and Groves said, Is, are you going to cry? Is he, go- is he going to cry? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it just was, he literally marmalised, scrambled Frotch's brain, didn't he, from start to finish. What a job he, he did. So much so that in between the first and the second fights, Frotch went to see a sports psychologist. He perhaps dipped yeah. out of the, the promotional build-up um, compared to Groves, who was working tirelessly on the, the promotion, the, the self-promotion as well. But... Yeah, they, they, there's no doubt. A Froch, I, I heard him speaking actually to Steve Bunce um, a couple of weeks ago, interestingly, and he was talking about the whole, this whole experience. And he was saying that he knew in training camp he wasn't hitting the numbers that he'd always hit. And, and while it was still a good training camp and everything went well, he knew that it was his last training camp. And essentially that was what was getting him through as well as the incentive to go, to go after Groves who'd become this psychological nemesis for him. 
Yeah, I was going to reference that interview. I think it was about a fortnight ago, wasn't it? And he was talking about that and just that, yeah, he had to go through with it. And you would speak to Froch, and Froch was exceptional with access. Sometimes he could be very, very prickly, and you would just get, you would get closed answers to very open questions. And you knew that you were not going to get anything from him. But then on the night, you could text him and say, look, I need to speak to you again. And he'd be like, no problem. Um, yeah, I'm driving up to Sheffield tomorrow or whatever. I'll have an hour. You can talk to me then. And then his mind was on it. And you could get some really, really good stuff. But Froch was was, was funny because he was so cocksure. Um, it was just always entertaining to speak to Carl Froch. But you, th- th- there wasn't so much mention in the build-up to the George Groves rematch in particular of, yeah, I'm knocking my times out the window. I'm sprinting faster than I ever have. I'm doing. There just wasn't so much mention of it at the time. Um, I can't remember who I thought was going to win the rematch. I think that the first one, I don't recall being more surprised by a punch. But, but there's two moments that immediately spring to mind. The first is that first round of the George Groves, uh, Carl Froch fight, where Groves had been saying exactly what he was going to do in that first round and then he did it and dropped Carl Froch and Carl Froch looked out and just you're stunned and as kind of a seasoned um, boxing fan not many things surprise you like that that shocked me and the other one of the other one was when Ruiz got up and and knocked Joshua down um, where you're just like wow um, but I did believe in that first fight, the Froch was very much getting on top and that Froch would have won if the stoppage hadn't have occurred when it did. I, I, I felt it was a premature stoppage. I thought it was unfair on George Groves, but my perception at the time, I'm not saying it was right, of course, but my perception at the time was Froch was getting on top. But whether I was picking Carl Froch going in, I, I genuinely can't remember. Um, but you compare the first fight to this second one, and I think the first fight, in terms of thrills and spills and excitement for round after round, was just levels and levels above this rematch. It was, you couldn't take your eyes off it, the, the rematch, but there wasn't a lot going on, was there? No, there wasn't. It was, it was basically, I suppose it was a battle of the jabs. And, and to be honest, I, I thought generally Joe Groves won that battle of the jabs and he was constantly teasing Froch to throw his jab, which he was missing. Commentary seemed quite positive on Froch throughout. And that's because I think there was the illusion throughout the second fight that Froch was in control because he was the fighter coming forward. And he was, I suppose, controlling the pace. Groves was happy to back off. He was happy to make Froch miss. And he was, I thought, punishing him with the, the jab occasionally. Really good, very jab. George Groves had. It was such a good jab. In you know, he jabbed to the body, double jab, lots of feints, real sharp, fast twist, twitch uh, action. Um, and Froch was missing a lot. And, and the intriguing thing about, you know, Froch's resume speaks for itself. And Froch won, inverted commas, both fights by knockout. But actually, the 17 rounds that they fought against each other there wasn't a whisker between them. In fact, if you look at the scorecards in both fights, four of the six scorecards actually were in favour of George Groves in those 17 rounds. So close generally, where are they? But ultimately, when you deliver 
a moment and a punch like Carl Froch did in the eighth round, you get to your right you get to write your own checks for the rest of history and you you effectively get to sit down and rewrite history, don't you? And Froch did that with that huge, big, spectacular right hand. And there was artistry behind the delivery as well, Matt, the way he set it up for the first time in the fight. And ironically, it was at a time when Groves was having his two best rounds of the whole fight. He'd had a brilliant seventh and it looked like he was taking control of the eighth. And then just suddenly, Froch stepped across, feet were a bit closer, through the, the throwaway left hook, which Groves had been protecting with his right glove all the way throughout the fight. And then just talk us through what happened next. Do you know what as well? It was it was right in front, as Tris Dixon says in his report. I was looking at Tris Dixon's report just before we started recording. That moment was right in front of where everybody in press row would have been sitting. And it was almost as if Froch was just kind of delivering a message to the world. Um, that finish, that one-punch knockout, was just one of the greatest one-punch knockouts in history. Not only for... What was riding on it, the the, the 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 height of the occasion, but just the craft involved. And Froch, I think throughout his career, is very much underrated in terms of his technical ability, but that was technically supreme. The manner in which he delivered that right hand. And then Groves just, he just folds up. His leg is underneath him. Very, very ugly kind of manner in which he fell, obviously done, gamely scrambled to his feet. Um, but then if you want any evidence that the grudge was real, very, very often in the aftermath of what we are told is a grudge match, and we're told it far too often these days, the fighters will embrace and there will be nothing but respect between them. <laughs> Carl Froch typically... But- <laughs> Typically, Carl Froch. There's when I when when I, when I land right hands on people's jaws like that, they get flattened. Especially if your punch resistant isn't renowned for being the best, which George Groves isn't, unfortunately for him. Yeah, he and uh, had the result been the other way around, you can't imagine Froch like Groves did going across to Froch as Groves did when he sort of regained his composure and, and things that uh, Froch had celebrated and things had settled down. Grove straight over, congratulating Froch. Froch almost not really wanting to take the congratulations. Straight over to the opposite corner, hugs and embraces with everybody else in, in that corner as part of Froch's uh, setup. Yeah, just absolute sheer class from, from Groves. And he, he would have beaten the count. Now, He'd have been vulnerable, but it, I, I was I was checking the numbers. I think he got up about nine, and that was with the referee almost stopping him from getting up as well. I mean, after that punch, to be tr- to be getting to your feet and and trying to and would have been beating the count just it's just ridiculous, really, because it was a perfectly timed right hand and no better sequence in in Carl Froch's career, and I think the sort of sort of movement and set up in motion that I suspect loads of young amateurs and people up and down the gyms were practicing in the weeks following as well. The lead left hook capped around Groves' right hand, a quick 
movement of the feet to close the distance. And then just that right hand as Groves was turning his chin away and he presented the whole left side of his face to that right hand and it absolutely connected perfectly. And that was that. What a punch that was from Carl Froch. The best of his career on the biggest night of his career in the biggest grudge match of his career. And ultimately, what a swan song that was. And Groves, as Froch walked away, and I suspect, Matt, the temptation to come back must have been enormous, even although he knew in that final training camp that it would be his last. The, the temptations and the offers must have been there in the sort of months and then the, the immediate years afterwards for, for Froch as Groves went on in search of, of that world title. Of course, I mean you 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 speak to Carl Froch now, and he you, you you sense that he could be persuaded even now to come back. But the <laughs> moment when I kind of knew or sensed that he had accepted that it was the end and that he was not going to come back was when I went to a boxing writers' dinner. Don't know if it was this year; it might have been the year that this fight took place, um, or it could have been must have been the following year because I think I think that yeah, it would have been the following year. And his nose had been fixed. He'd had the nose job, Carl Froch. And that was when you knew that he had called time on his boxing career because he wasn't going to go back in and risk having his nose put out of joint. Um, <laughs> but you, I, mi- I, I missed that old I, nose. I really, missed, <laughs> I really, really missed that old nose. That, that was Froch for me. So identifiable. But, you know, you, you, you talk about Carl Froch kind of walking away and it was the perfect goodbye and it was it was one of the most perfect goodbyes from any fighter in the history of boxing I mean the sport notoriously doesn't allow fighters to do that it does just keep harassing you and harassing you and drawing fighters back when they shouldn't come back but Carl Froch did exactly the right thing but I think Groves had no choice but to come back if he hadn't fought again after that I don't think he'd be able to live with himself today. The fact that he came back and though I think there was a period of kind of indifferent form for him, the fact that he came back, he won a belt um, and then he had that rivalry with Chris Eubank Jr. Um, and he, he, he proved himself to be what a classy fighter he is. You mentioned his jab. George Groves as an all-round fighter was a joy. An absolute joy, George Groves. And his, his, his right hand was just so venomous. Um, he almost had it all, George Groves. Um, and I'm glad that he came back. And it would have been very, very difficult for him. We talk about the psychological battles that fighters must face, but George Groves conquered almighty one when he got back in the ring and had a successful end to his career. Absolutely right. Uh, ultimately, winning that uh, world title and going... Uh, almost all the way in the World Boxing Super Series as well. Froch Groves to all that enmity, the previous fight, so much to talk about, so much going on uh, as well. And uh, ultimately the crowning moment of Froch's career. Froch ultimately under underrated as a, as a British super middleweight or, or, or about right? I think Froch has been underrated. Um, I'm not sure if it's a consequence of his personality kind of rubbing up people the wrong way. Well, that's just Carl Froch. Um, I'm not sure if it's a consequence of him becoming known to a new generation as a co-commentator or an, an, an analyst. 
um, in a similar way that when Jim Watt was just like part of the furniture as various people's kind of sidekicks on ITV, on Sky Sports, whether it was Reg Guttridge or whoever, um, that he just became known more as a commentator than the brilliant lightweight champion that he was. Um, and I just wonder if it's something like that. For whatever reason, Carl Froch doesn't seem to get the credit that he deserves. I think if you look at it, look at his overall resume, what he did at one six eight pounds, you could say you could make an argument. I'm not saying that this is the case, but you could make an argument that he should be number one. Um, I know Joe Calzaghe because he was undefeated. And he had the he put together those victories at the end of his career. That te- seems to be the consensus choice, and in all honesty, it probably would be mine. I thought Calzaghe was sensational and at his best amongst his peers, close to invincible. Joe Calzaghe at his best. But you look at what Froch achieved, and he did it on the road. And for so long, he was just being ignored by uh, big broadcasters and what have you. And then he'd go, you know, the Jermaine Taylor fight that we talked about recently. Um, so much of, of, of what he achieved was just with his sheer bloody-mindedness. And when you have that level of bloody-mindedness and that level of determination, it's no surprise that now and again you're going to come out with one or two things that might rub people up the wrong way, is it? And when you've been knocked down twice in your career and looked out and have got back up to win on both occasions, you can rightly lay claim to having a granite chin and being a hard man. And there's no doubt Froch uh, can lay claim to to both of those. Whether you think he'd ever, ever beaten a Joe Calzaghe, that's a discussion for another day, maybe on a special bonus pod. That was Froch Groves uh, 2 from this week in history. And we'll be back again next week to do it all again. Folks, thanks for your support and enjoy the fight. So much to get your teeth into this weekend. We'll speak again next week. Bye for now. 